Some companies still know how business casual is done. It's strictly business. We need to do an acapella cover of this intro. Do Thoughts? We? Thoughts? Market, <laughs> market scale uh, Market scale records? Hey, could be big. That's true. As we look for more ways to branch out. Yeah. You know, you know we're always looking to scale, so maybe we'll just be scaling into some Spotify streaming. There's nothing uh, controversial or weird about getting into the music industry these days. Oof. I actually, you know, it's interesting you bring that up. I saw an article. No, wrong. I saw a tweet mm-hmm. that was like, um, oh, did you get a Google Home with your Spotify subscription? Cool. I got $3 for my 10,000 plays on my EP that I have to split between my four bandmates. And it was like a some artist wow. just like complaining. And I think it was a bit hyperbolic, like $3 is a little low. Yeah. But the core of the argument is very much there. I mean, basically, <laughs> we should do a whole story on this eventually. But, you know, Spotify could, if they wanted to, pay more in mm-hmm. royalties. Um, but right now, the business model doesn't incentivize uh, any streaming platform to fork over a lot of money for royalties because right. music and like it being on your platform, it's almost like, oh, we're doing you a service by allowing you to have your music on our platform. You're reaching an audience, so you don't need as much pay is kind of the the vibe. So yeah, maybe market scale records would be a bad investment. <laughs> <laughs> it just feels like not the right time. Not the right time. Streaming is going to be big in the future for music and for funding artists' endeavors, but I think right now it's more of like a an unfortunate marketing move that you have to do, yeah. but it's definitely not how you make money as an artist. Which is a bummer. Which is a bummer. It is a bummer. And you know it's not a bummer. Business casual on Friday mornings. Casual Fridays. Mm, hello, everyone. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. I am Tyler Kern, the colonel, the podfather, the soundbite surgeon. Yes. All of the names. Uh, you're you're going to have like 10 acronyms after your last name, yes, like on please. LinkedIn. That um, is what I want. <laughs> but hello, everyone. Welcome to uh, another episode of our show. We're excited to have you listening along. Um, if you'd like, go ahead and follow us on Twitter. We're on. Oh, um, it's business. You know, it's biz b i z casual biz casual radio radio. Yep. Yeah. At b i z casual radio, um, we try to tweet about you know what's happening every uh, every show Wednesday and Friday to give you some updates, and then we'll tweet out the stories once they're up, so you can engage with the content on there. But Tyler, we've got a pretty stacked show today. We're going to be chatting uh, UAW GM. Mm-hmm. We're going to be chatting uh, China and trade war tariffs. Yes, we are. With some expert insight. We're also going to be chatting Southwest and some Boeing partnerships. Uh, and on top of all that, we're going to be chatting Lyft and Uber as well. So we've got some big names and mm-hmm. some big industries that we're unpacking. So I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I am as well. Yeah. So let's dive in. Let's dive right in. This is hard-hitting Fridays. As much as it's casual Fridays, we've got some juicy stories to unpack. Tyler, hit us with number one. We are going to hit the stories hard, but in a casual manner. <laughs> uh, and the first of which is that Uber and Lyft have rolled out updates to their mandatory app for drivers that has kind of changed the game for them a little bit. After installing this update to the app, the drivers noticed that they could no longer see how much the rider was paying for any given trip. So in place of that section, 
of the fare breakdown on the app. Drivers are directed to a web link that shows a weekly breakdown of their fares, how much Lyft took, and how much all of their riders paid during that time period in aggregate. But when a driver looks at their history, the app now only tells them what they earned, not the total of what the rider paid, if that Hmm. makes sense. Okay. So... What this has kind of brought about is this idea that it's almost secretive how much Lyft is making versus how much they're paying their drivers. And if you remember kind of that tip controversy that went on with what was the delivery service, the food delivery service? Oh, I don't remember. Um, I mean, there's DoorDash. There's yeah, what was it? I don't want to. I don't want to slander one of them yeah, right. necessarily. <laughs> but but uh, more and more, it feels like with these gig economy type things. What the company is making is they're trying to kind of cloud that a little bit to hide that maybe from the people that are doing the actual work, like the drivers and Mm -hmm. that kind of thing, so that there's not this feeling of really like I did this and made this much and the company took X amount from that overall total profit, if that makes sense. Yeah, and you know, I I, as we were prepping for this, I tried to look at it from the the Lyft perspective. Like, why would Lyft want to do this and how might it be beneficial? Right. And it, it's really difficult to come up with a reasoning um, because really the reasoning they give is that this is supposed to be more straightforward for you, the driver. Mm-hmm. When you look at your information and you look at how much you're making a week, um, you know, uh, and you can better judge um, your finances, like, it's basically supposed to demystify what you're making as a driver but to a degree i think it actually does the opposite yeah um i mean really what this is doing is it's further decoupling what the rider earns excuse me no what the rider pays versus what the driver earns it's decoupling those two so there's less of an understanding actually on if your performance your star rating Uh your conversational ability your you know, like if you speed or if you don't speed or like little things that actually impact the flavor of the ride. Yeah. It's it's less clear on if that actually impacts what you earn because now there's two separate pay structures and calculations. There's the rider pays Lyft and then now a whole new calculation of what Lyft wants to pay the driver and there's less clarity on, okay, well, if they pay, the driver paid this much, how what percentage am I making? Um, and it, it really, in my opinion, doesn't do a lot to justify some of the um, legal conversations going on right now yeah. between Uber, Lyft, and uh, California. So, I mean, we're always going to be talking AB5 when we bring up Uber and Lyft because right now the legal conversation is um, our drivers are independent contractors, and their argument is actually they are not an essential part of the business, so we don't have to classify them as employees, which I think is a, a funny Humorous. argument. Yes, interesting argument that they chose to die on. Um, but beyond that, um, that argument is kind of rooted in if you're an independent contractor, uh, then really Lyft is only there to facilitate a payment or a uh, you know a handshake basically between driver and rider. Right. But by doing this, Lyft is now the employer because basically they're taking the money and then in a new calculation paying the drivers based on some algorithm or, or some decision of performance. So actually, what they're saying legally 
is not what's being reflected in these business practices. So it's just bringing up a lot of conflict and a lot of questions as to why is this the move forward and how are they going to back this up while they're embroiled in a legal argument for how should we even classify our employees? It seems like they're kind of shooting themselves in the foot a little bit. Yeah, and at most places where you work, and maybe I'm wrong about this, but at most places where you work, you understand if there is this kind of setup. Like, say you're in business development here at MarketScale. Hmm. Uh, you know what percentage of every sale that you make comes back to you in terms of commission. Like, right. when it comes to pay you know what the structure is. And now in this case, it's kind of been hidden behind a veil of, okay, well, for every ride I do, like how much am I actually making of the overall percentage? And that right. feels that feels shady. And to kind of go along with a little bit of what we're talking about when it comes to gig economy stuff, and when it comes to uh, what drivers actually make, there were some statistics that came out on Morning Brew this morning from a paper that was written that says only 16% of rides were tipped uh, so only 16% of people that ride in Uber and Lyft are tipping. Huh. Only 1% of riders always tipped. Riders with five-star ratings tip twice as often and 14% more than 4.75-star riders. Wow. So That's actually a pretty big discrepancy it, there. It really is. Yeah. And also male riders were 19% more likely to tip. Just a random, a random thing. But just as we talk about uh, maybe how much they're getting paid per ride – Considering in the fact that not many people are tipping at right. all, it would be helpful to know what percentage of the overall cost of the ride to the rider is going to the driver. Right. And if there are ongoing conversations about, you know, riders feel like, or excuse me, drivers feel like they uh, aren't being paid adequately or like their wages aren't mm -hmm. reflected of the work they're giving or they just cannot subsist off of, you know, uh, whatever a 40-hour wage is with Uber or Lyft, um, we need to be talking about what is the tipping culture yes. in taking, uh, you know, some kind of service like this, um, and should we even be encouraging tipping as a core money-making aspect of this industry? It's a good question. Um you know, it, it just goes back to how we treat different industries and how we treat paying people in those different industries. And personally, you know, I, I, I think um, just a better flat wage is more consistent, obviously, considering literally no one tips. Mm -hmm. um, it's not the most consistent thing and probably not super exciting for drivers. But I do also enjoy the incentive behind tipping, which is like if you perform a better uh, service, if you um, you know, are more friendly, more amicable, you drove better, took a better route, were more careful on the road, then you're maybe more deserving of a higher tip. And that really, you know, encompasses the meritocracy aspect of what I think this is trying to be. However, it's just hard to calculate if that's really what's going on because you don't know if you're being paid for your merits. So exactly. It's tough. It is tough. We have to move on because our next story kind of keeps us in this transportation world and it deals with Southwest Airlines. So at the moment, every airplane in the Southwest Airlines fleet is a Boeing 737, Daniel. Uh, now, earlier this week, Southwest CEO Gary Kelly said that the airline's board, at his suggestion, has asked its management team to study whether or not they should keep Boeing as the sole supplier of aircrafts for Southwest Airlines. Now, it seems obvious, right, that uh, maybe this isn't the best idea to keep Boeing around, given all of the problems they've had with the 737 MAX. <laughs> the current version of the 737 has been grounded since March because of two fatal crashes that killed 346 people. Um, 
So obviously, like when we talk about these types of stories, I, I feel like it's this. There's this weird um, ground that we're discussing because we're discussing the business aspect of something that's been so thoroughly affected by the fact that 346 people died. Right. Um, it, which just feels weird to to discuss, but that's that's kind of how we have to go about it here. So yeah. Um, Southwest has 34 of the 737 Max in its fleet. That's the most of any airline. But here's the big thing: is that when you have an airline, when you, when you are Southwest Airlines, and all of your planes are the same then you create some real operational efficiencies based around that one thing, right? Right. So it's a lot easier to um, service all the planes because the exactly. method is the same across the board. You don't have to retrain your ground crew to service three to four different types of planes. If you have a pilot yeah. that can't fly, right. you can seamlessly switch around pilots and that sort of thing, and it's not a big deal at all. And so all of these different things are, you know, kind of contribute to the fact that it, it creates a lot of a lot of efficiency for Southwest Airlines to only have this one type of plane. Right. So is it worth it to lose a little bit of that? A lot of that, really. Right. I mean, you're, you're kind of hurting your model, your overall model for doing things if you do switch planes. But there have been these issues like we talked about. And right. by people issues, I mean... literally died. There are a lot of people that died <laughs> right. as a result of these issues with Boeing's planes. And Southwest Airlines is losing a lot of money by virtue of the fact that they have 34 planes grounded. And so they're not able to kind of fully service all of the areas that they'd like to do. Right. So all of these issues kind of combine to create a bit of a conundrum for Southwest Airlines. I mean, when I think of an airline that really wholeheartedly values its public persona and its customer service, I immediately turn to Southwest Airlines. Yeah. I think of all the airlines, they're the ones that really live and breathe their mission of we're going to give you an astounding, unique flying experience. Yeah. Uh, and we're going to do it at an affordable price. Um, and I think when you've got the potential of a PR nightmare of sticking with planes in your fleet that could crash and burn and kill your constituents, uh, that's bad. You know, that's bad news. And this is a case where bad press is bad press. It's not good press. So right. um, it's just... It's difficult because they have to not only balance their logistical back end, like you said, but also they have to keep in mind we need to uh, provide flights that are going to keep our customers happy. And if that means that we're going to retain the most customers and retain our customer service persona by just saying, okay, screw it, we have to work off of two different kinds of planes now instead of just one – I could see them embracing that decision because I think they put so much stock in the customer service and in being able to provide affordable uh, and consistent flights. See, I see what you're saying. I, I guess I just I wonder if they would still be able to provide those right. consistent experiences and you know the cheaper flights and all of these things that we've come to know and expect and love so much about Southwest Airlines. Will they still be able to provide those things? If they have to kind right. of adjust what they're doing to... Would it slow down the process? Exactly. Would it become more cumbersome to fly Southwest? And the truth is, it might for a bit, but you would hope that they would smooth out any of those issues soon, right? You I mean, think. Yeah, you'd think. I I don't know. It's, uh, it's difficult to say, and it, it's one of those, um, one of those business balances that... I don't think there's a clear answer either way, but I lean in the customer service direction and I lean towards if you're a company that 
has kind of staked its name on being um, so so customer facing. Right. Do you really want to potentially jeopardize that by saying, well, you know, we went to the table, we thought about it, and we decided, yes, we are going to stick with these potential, uh, you know, coffins with wings as our main fleet. So it's just, I, I don't know. It could be strange PR gymnastics there to make it happen, but... I trust Southwest. I feel like they make some pretty solid business decisions, and they know how to represent their um, their customer base well. So yeah, well, the, the two sides, Boeing and Southwest, have to come to an agreement, kind of over damages done to Southwest already. Mm-hmm. So a lot of their relationship moving forward will depend on how those neg- negotiations go and that sort of thing. But yeah. we'll have to leave that story there for the time being and stay up to date with it, uh, and uh, maybe keep an eye on that one. But we're going to step aside for a quick break. When we get back, we will be talking with uh, Phil Levy. Am I right about that? Yes, sir. He yes, is sir. chief economist for Flexport, and we're going to be chatting a bit about U.S. farm sales to China and how a potential uh, trade war agreement could bring um, imports of ag products to China back to a more reasonable level. We want to talk a little bit about how that is going to impact the U.S. economy. So That's coming up next, so stick around. We'll be right back. Have you ever thought to yourself, podcasts are pretty cool. I should use one to market my company. Good news, you're not alone. But where do you start? MarketSkills Thought Leadership Club makes it easy to dive into the world of B2B podcasting. With in-house podcast production, audio hosting, and more, MarketScale can be your podcast partner that sets you up as a thought leader in your industry, creating the content that powers B2B. For more information, head to marketscale.com and find out what thousands of companies already know to be true, that podcasting is the future of thought leadership in B2B marketing. I like this new music. You like this it's, one? Yeah. Ooh, it's got a good groove. All right, folks. So the U.S.-China trade war could be inching closer to at least a partial resolution. So China is looking to purchase $20 billion worth of agricultural products in the next year if they finalize and sign on to this trade deal with the U.S. that they're currently negotiating. And this could bring Chinese imports of U.S. ag products back to 2017 levels before these back-and-forth tariffs that we've seen. So we wanted to get some thoughts on uh, this potential deal and what this could mean for the United States agricultural sector. I'd like to welcome Phil Levy, Chief Economist for Flexport. Phil, welcome to Business Casual. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thanks. Good to be with you. Yeah, great to have you on. Uh, You're one of our favorite contributors, so always good to have you on the air. So, Phil, initial thoughts on this potential trade deal. Is it a smart move to go in on this partial deal, at least smart for the United States? I think it's better than escalating tariffs. Uh, The Trump administration really backed itself into a corner on this one, and so this is trying to edge out. Um, I think there's a lot of problems, so I'm not sure this is going to hold... So what what are the problems you think um, could still create a ripple effect here in these deals and this relationship? Well, so the biggest one is the Trump administration set into this, identifying very, very visibly a lot of deep-seated problems with Chinese practices. And they were right on a lot of those. There are a lot of deep-seated problems. If you take a deal like this, you're kind of saying yeah, we'll get to those later. I don't think we're going to really be able to handle it very much. And you're opening yourself up to criticisms, and we've already seen those this morning, 
where someone says, hold on a second, we went through all of this pain, we paid billions of dollars in subsidies to farmers, and you're just getting us back to 2017 where we started? What was this all for? Hmm. Now, see, yeah, that's that's interesting. It would be uh, potentially just a step back to normal instead of an improvement on some of the core issues that they had mentioned. Um, you know, that's that's definitely an interesting perspective. Where do you think this would leave the U.S. and China's trade status? Uh, you know, who who ended up conceding on what and what do you think this spells for the future of that trade relationship? Yeah, so that's a great question. And we just had a speech yesterday by the vice president where he was trying to give some ideas of where we might go with this relationship. He was kind of the the news to me was that he was sort of ruling out this idea of decoupling, this idea that we're not going to be dealing with China anymore. He says, no, we are going to deal with them, but we've got to fix the problem. I think where this leaves us, though, I don't think the Chinese have either the trust or the inclination at this stage to try and cut any deep-seated deal with the Trump administration. In fact, I think they believe he's signaling weakness and are therefore increasing their demands. You noted that this is a talk about doing $20 billion in ag purchases. That's interesting because when the president first announced it, it was 40 to $50 billion. Right. Um, you can say, well, yeah, we get there over time, maybe, possibly, although that would be dramatically more than we've ever done in the past. Um, and I think the Chinese, the, the, there's a Reuters report this morning, they're saying, oh, by the way, if we're going to do this, we also want you to not just stop the October 15th tariffs, but also the December 15th tariffs and roll back your September 1st tariffs. Right. Which Those would all be good things to do, from my opinion, but I think this is giving some indication of which way the power is tilting in the relationship. Yeah, that's that's definitely interesting. Moving forward, the negotiations could be uh, leaning in very different directions uh, if we don't come out of this on the other side. Um, you know, potentially feeling like the U.S. is more in control, uh, especially after being kind of the the impetus of the ones putting the tariffs. Uh, on these imports. So, like you said, the president is saying that once the talks are completely over and the trade war is resolved, that Chinese imports of U.S. ag products could hike up to 40 or even 50 billion. Do you think that's a realistic expectation? And if so, what kind of impact could that have on our agricultural industry or just the global ag economy in general? Well, I I think that's dramatically higher than what we've done in the past. And um, anyone who's been involved in agriculture knows you don't just sort of double production overnight, um, which means that you would either need to be reorienting that, taking sales that went somewhere else and then re- and directing them back towards China, or you need time to, to plant and, and grow stuff. So that would be a dramatic change. It's I'm not sure that number was ever realistic. Part of this is when China says, oh, we'll buy $40 billion of ag products from you, this is not like you or me going to the grocery store. Um, with a checkbook in hand, they can say to their farmers, okay, we're not going to stick tariffs on anymore, but it's not a state purchasing arrangement. So I I find it hard to believe they'll hit those numbers, and it would be challenging, I think, to sort of rearrange U.S. agriculture in such a way as to get to those numbers. Don't get me wrong. Uh, Farmers would be very happy to have Chinese markets back, and if you're getting back to where we were, I think they would be thrilled about that. Doubling that is not something that happens overnight. Right, right. Well, we'll just have to keep our ear to the ground and see uh, you know, if this ends up ever reaching those numbers and what the uh, decision 
of the administration as well as the general agricultural industry in general is to try to achieve something like 40 to 50 billion dollars worth of imports to China. Real quick before I let you leave, could you just sum up real quick how you think this might affect uh, at a micro level the actual soybean farmers, uh, which are the crop that are most imported by China? Yeah, I think they've been sort of badly hurt by this. Um, they had, you know, we'd already been seeing challenging crop prices. And if this goes through, this would be serious relief for the soybean farmers. All right, Phil Levy, thank you so much for joining us again. Phil Levy is chief economist for Flexport. Phil, we'll have you back on soon. Look forward to it. Thank Th- you. Thanks again. All right, T, last story. This is another juicy one. Um, Really interesting stuff happening with this UAW-GM deal. Uh, So right now the auto industry and its workers are holding their breath because by the end of today, Friday, uh, UAW members will know if they have a four-year agreement with GM ratified or if they're going back to week seven of the picket line. And the conditions of this deal in the span of four years would create a pathway for temporary workers to get hired. It would give the union more control over how many temps GM can even hire in the first place. It would provide across-the-board wage increases. It would keep healthcare costs low and affordable. And uh, immediately, UAW workers would receive a bonus of $11,000, and temporary workers would get a bonus of $4,500. And the vote right now is looking pretty promising to pass. At the local level, uh, a lot of UAW chapters are at least 50% or more in agreement with this deal. So I think to a degree, either they're ready for the strike to end uh, or this deal um, is actually meeting a lot of the requirements that they were wanting at the end of the strike. However, I'm not really bringing this up for the deal itself. There's one side of this agreement that I think is most indicative of the future of GM and the UAW, and that is a new committee that might help in the transition to new automotive technologies. So with this deal, there would be the creation of the National Committee on Advanced Technology, which would bring three reps from GM and three reps from UAW, respectively, to meet quarterly, addressing how sh- uh, how GM should roll out the implementation of technology like 3D printing, driverless taxi cars, battery electric vehicles at scale. And really, uh, the reasoning for this is that automotive technology in the future is going to cut out a lot of production needs. Uh, And without clear direction, it could leave a lot of workers displaced. So this committee is meant to make that transition less drastic and more thoughtful of workers' needs. Uh, There were some stats, something like um, the powerhouse of the car uh, on an electric car is like... It takes 80% less production and has 80% less parts than its fossil fuel-powered um, counterpart in a sure. regular car. So it, I think naturally there is going to be, to a degree, some job loss and some plant closure during this transition to uh, electric vehicles. However, I think there are also many new opportunities that can come up new technologies, new equipment, and that's exactly what uh, the NCAT would provide. So it would provide third-party training for employees so that they can adapt to new factory floor technology and new equipment. And uh, this is just totally necessary because according to Larry Burns, former GM VP of R&D, he said new electric cars will, quote, last longer, 
have half as many parts requiring less labor, fewer engineers, and fewer purchasing personnel, end quote. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think a positive outcome of this strike and these negotiations is that UAW is going to be more set up to adapt to potential changes to the automotive industry. Mm -hmm. And I think it's to GM's benefit to have the union at the table for those discussions um, because when the workers are better qualified, uh, more educated on how to use the technology and obviously are retained, I think it just gives a boost of confidence to those workers. Um, they obviously would feel better about staying and working at GM if they feel like they're being given the opportunity to adapt to new styles of engineering and right. manufacturing and new cars in general. Um, and employee turnover is always expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in the long run, I, I can't scientifically prove this, but I would think that in the long run, investing in education of your current personnel and keeping them around is going to be less costly to the company than getting rid of everyone and trying to find new people uh, to to make these new vehicles under new processes and with new equipment. What's interesting about all of this is that the market for electric vehicles right now is only at 2%. Yeah. It's pretty weak. And that's only going to be getting to an estimated 20% by 2030. So even in the span of another decade... Uh, the electric vehicle market is going to be larger, but it's not going to be the core of the automotive industry yet. At least that's the estimation. So um, I don't think we're going to see the big, scary job losses quite yet. Uh, And I also don't know if investing in the equipment and the uh, infrastructure to make this happen, the education to make it happen, Mm -hmm. is even worth it at this point because the market is so small for electric vehicles. However, I do see this potentially backfiring to a degree in that if there is more of a structure to train and adapt workers to this next generation of electric vehicles, it could provide more of an infrastructure for GM to train who they need, get rid of who they don't, and transition to electric vehicles faster and potentially speed up this idea that we're going to lose workers, we're going to lose whole plants, uh, in the name of cleaner vehicles and electric cars. So it's right. a it's a balancing act, right? Uh, electric vehicles are uh, popular and definitely part of this national let's go green conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if it's going to disproportionately impact these workers, um, then I think that's why we need committees like this to help make that transition smoother and hopefully, uh, you know, uh, quell some of those job losses as much as possible. Definitely. Any quick thoughts on this? Uh, I think anytime you can increase efficiencies, you're keeping up with what's going on in other places around the world. And so I think it's one of the things I've talked about with uh, Dan Alford from Arc Specialties is that when you increase efficiency, you keep jobs here uh, that could otherwise go elsewhere for cheaper labor. And so you have to keep up with the times. The way that America keeps up is innovation. It's not by reducing how much you pay your employees. And so uh, I think you got to keep up with the times. You got to move forward in terms of what is new and what is innovative. And um, I think that's the way to do it. Agreed. And then tagging onto that, how can you do that while at the same time respecting and transitioning the workforce that makes that innovation happen? Uh, I agree with you that I think you train the current workforce, not let all of them go and then rehire new people. Yeah. I mean, 
personally, I feel like that would be the best investment and would reflect the best on the company. Yeah. Um, is it actually the most cost effective? I don't know. We'll have to do some research. Maybe we'll publish some market scale original research on that one. We'll have to see, buddy. <laughs> All right. I think that'll do it for today's episode of Business Casual. Thanks, everyone, for listening along. If you'd like, again, please give us a follow on uh, Twitter at BizCasualRadio. We'll be tweeting from there. More stories, more updates. Tyler, I know you've got some more fun radio coming up here. What should our listeners stay tuned for here in the next couple of minutes? Maverick of Marketing on Monday. But coming up next is a, a brand new show that we're releasing called I Don't Care with Kevin Stevenson. It's on the healthcare industry. It's called I Don't Care because Kevin is not a physician. He's hmm. someone who's deeply involved in the industry, though. And so he has a lot of insight. So stay tuned for the first episode of I Don't Care with Kevin Stevenson coming up next. Going to be good. All right. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, voice of B2B. I'm your other host, Tyler Kern. We'll see you on Wednesday. Adios.